I was only 13 years old. One night over dinner, we just kind of blurted it out. Like, hey, mom, I want to swim across Lake Ontario. And they thought I was crazy. And right away, they said, no way, not, not a chance. So it was supposed to take between 15 and 18 hours. It ended up taking almost 27 hours. So far, and still counting, $193,000 The more darkness we face, the more we need bright symbols to light our path forward. So I'm packing up my camera gear to go out in search of Superman. Not in the pages of a comic book or in a movie theater, but in us. I think everyone has that power. Anyone can do something good. I didn't know if it was possible, but I knew if it was possible, she could do it. Today, hope is a real thing. You gotta stay positive and you gotta give yourself a chance. She spotted and picked up something that the rest of us hadn't noticed. It was this teeny tiny little flower and then she shared it. I mostly do all my stuff in, the, in this cape. I don't think I wanna ask mom to wash it. You're you. You should just take the one thing that you have and shine. Everybody has differences and you can always be yourself. On my shirt, it says, kindness is my jam. It says, kindness is my jam. Before I came to Haiti, I thought that I was giving them a gift. But then once I got here, I knew that they were giving me a gift. If they fall down, I grab the handheld and I just pull them up. Radio, your source for all things related to the CW Supergirl TV series and the character of Kara Zor-El. My name is Rebecca Johnson. I'm Morgan Glennon. And for this episode of the podcast, we are joined by filmmaker Brett Culp to talk about his new documentary film titled Look to the Sky. Welcome to Supergirl Radio, Brett. Oh, thanks for inviting me. It's such a joy to be with you. Well, we are glad to have you because I know you snuck a little Supergirl into uh, Look to the Sky, so we wanted to have you on and um, talk about all things Superman and Supergirl and what we think about hope and all of those kinds of big questions. Um, but before we actually get into the film Look to the Sky, I was curious about your background in filmmaking. Uh, how did you get involved in wanting to make films and, and documentary films in particular? So when I was in college, I started filming weddings. And I did that in my 20s. I filmed a lot of weddings and I got really good at it. And I did a lot of work for celebrities uh, flying all over the world with them, capturing not only their weddings, but their personal events. And 
at some point they started pulling me into all the work they were doing with charity and foundations. And, you know, I would go to Haiti for four days to film the work they were doing down there with their foundation and make a little short documentary film about it. And at some point somebody said to me, Brett, these are amazing what you're doing. You should be making your own films. And that was like, hey, you're right. I totally should. And now we're living in a digital era where anyone can make a film. And so with no budget, I took a $500 Canon DSLR. It was a Canon Rebel. And I made a documentary film called Legends of the Night, which is related to Batman. It tells the stories of people inspired to become heroes in their own life because of their childhood love of Batman. It was just a passion project I had. I didn't expect anything to happen with it, but that project blew up on me. It got massive you know, media coverage. I ended up on podcasts with a lot of well-known geeks and all kinds of – I ended up in places I would have never imagined. That film screened in 100 – in 10 cities all over the world. It raised $100,000 for charity. Then it was on Netflix and iTunes and Hulu and everywhere else, and – that film really kind of launched me into this film career that I was not expecting. It was meant to be just a personal fun project. And yet now here I am making films and traveling all over the country talking about them. So it's it's been a weird, unexpected ride for me over the past five years. I highly recommend to any of our listeners, if you haven't, uh, definitely watch Legends of the Night. It's a great Great, inspiring film. Uh, with as with all of Brett's films, um, make sure you have a, a tissue, a Kleenex, something <laughs> beside you because I'm always a blubbering mess when I, in the best way. In the best way, yes. I'm always a, a blubbering mess uh, when I watch your movies, um, just because they're so oh. inspiring and so moving. So I definitely would recommend uh, Legends of the Night to anyone who hasn't seen it. And I'm I'm curious. You may you may not be able to talk much about it, but you mentioned celebrity weddings, and I'm curious what 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 makes a celebrity wedding? Is it a uh, fancy uh, receptions. Um, but what, what did you find were the cases there? <laughs> I filmed a wedding that cost $10 million. Ooh, like those ooh. kinds of ridiculous events. I mean, I filmed a 40th birthday party for someone in Cabo San Lucas in Mexico where the entertainment at the reception was the Eagles. Wow. They flew in what? the Eagles and they played for an hour. And that was the, you know, I've filmed weddings where you know, Cirque du Soleil performed during dinner, mm. you know, where the, the, the band, the reception band was ACDC, <laughs> you know, where we flew over and they essentially took over a small island in Greece and got married at the top of a mountain, you know, like that movie Mamma Mia. And they took my, <laughs> they carried my equipment up to the top of the hill on donkeys. And I mean, stuff like that, it was a crazy, and this was, you know, when the economy was booming before 2008 and people were just spending money like crazy and doing really extravagant, crazy things. And so, you know, I, I, I mean, I was on a battleship with Tom Clancy on his 70th birthday. <laughs> I've been to, you know, I, I spent four days on Tyler Perry's private island. You know, I, I just did all of this really crazy stuff with amazing people and um, got to know them and connect with them and had some amazing experiences during that that time in my life. Definitely. That sounds like a lot of fun and a lot of great experiences <laughs> and a lot of great uh, chances to practice 
shooting and, and uh, editing and wh- whatever you were all involved in with those projects. That's awesome. And I'm, I'm curious because I'm, I'm a wannabe uh, videographer. I make some little documentary things for my YouTube channel. I was uh, I went to college for um, broadcast production, and uh, you know I'm a camera operator. So I'm curious, uh, just for your background, what made you first want to pick up a camera? What 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 inspired you to want to be someone who captured something on film? Yeah, I mean, it was very instinctive for me as a child. I mean, when when I was ten years old. My dad, you know, brought a VHS video camera into the house and I just took it over. You know, I was making stop motion animation with my Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles figures. <laughs> I have little videos of me moving around my Batman figures. This was, you know, after the 1989 Batman movie, you know, of me moving around those figures, doing all the voices, playing the Danny Elfman score in the background. You know, I mean, I made that equipment do things that no human being should make this equipment do (laughs) to try to tell these stories that were in my heart to tell. And, you know, and whenever my friends, you know, in the neighborhood would come over, I was always trying to talk them into making movies with me. So I made Batman movies, James Bond movies, Rambo movies. I mean, you name it during that time. I mean, I you know, it was, it was ridiculous. So, I mean, I did that all through, you know, if there was an English project in high school, it was going to be a little video. If there was, I mean, any opportunity that I could take, it was just what I loved. And you know, that saying about, you know, go back to what you loved as a child, you know, there's something in that that's your most authentic self. And that just always was the way it was for me. And so, you know, I never went to film school. Uh, my degree was in journalism, but it really was more in the, it wasn't in the film or broadcast department. It was really more in the writing, you know, PR, public relations, advertising kind of department. Um, and so, you know, I never formally learned how to use a camera. I never formally learned how to use an editing system, but I learned how to tell stories, and how to tell them in a way that was effective and powerful and that connected to the human condition. And I think that's in the early days what made my wedding films unique was that, you know, now there's a lot of amazing wedding filmmakers in the world. But, you know, 20 years ago when I was really starting out, I mean, I'm 41. So I started making wedding films 20 years ago. I mean, digital was really just starting. And so the idea of taking a wedding and turning it into a 15-minute cinematic kind of story that that had a lot of heart. And that wasn't just a chronological three-hour recording of the day. I mean, that was very new 20 years ago. And so, you know, that was just kind of my gut to take something that was very boring initially and turn it into something very interesting. And, and so I think it was that process all along the way of innovating and making mistakes and trying out things. And, you know, that was really important to me and that got me, you know, it, it, it's taken me a while, but I think at this point now I'm actually pretty decent at it. Oh, yeah, I think you're I think you're great at it. And I think that some of those things, even if you don't go to film school, some of that stuff is instinctual. I think everybody mm-hmm. has a perspective and a way they look at the world. And that's really interesting that you had a, a background in journalism, because I think some of that your storytelling technique comes through 
in that. So that's that's really cool to know. And so we've talked about your your film background and uh, how you got to where you are now with uh, filmmaking and video work. Um, but what's your history with Superman and Supergirl? Since Look to the Sky is um, uses Superman and Supergirl as a backdrop, what is your history with the characters? Where did you first in- encounter them? Yeah, I mean these characters. I mean there's a there's a scene in Legends of the Night where Travis Langley is talking about Batman and he says, it's like the sky, you know, you don't (laughs) remember the first time you encountered them. And that's the way I feel about both Batman and Superman. I mean, I don't remember that. I'm going to suspect that super friends was probably my first exposure to these characters. Uh, you know, that old cartoon that played, you know, 12 times on Saturday morning, you know, because it was, they played it for years because everybody just loved it. I mean, I think that was my first run at all of these Justice League characters, Batman, Superman, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman. And what's so funny about that show is essentially they're all the same character. Like they have different <laughs> outfits on and I guess they have different voices, but they all just act the same. Like there's no difference between them. But I think that sort of heroic spirit of those characters is like embedded in my gut. And, and I think at the end of the day, you know, the, the character that you see all of those justice league characters play is really in essence, Superman because Superman was the hot character at that time because of Christopher Reeves, you know, Superman movie. And so I I think the, you know, the Christopher Reeves, super friends, the superpowers cartoons, I think all of that during that Christopher Reeve era of Superman is really my first exposure to all of all of the Superman family, Supergirl, all of those characters. Would you uh, would you say you had a favorite Superman? Oh, I mean, as a kid, I don't think there's any question that Christopher Reeves was my Christopher Reeve was my favorite Superman. Um you know, just because he was the Superman of that age, and unlike Batman, who, you know, was changing, who was under that cowl every two or three years, for a long time, you know, in the 90s and in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, you know, Superman didn't change that much. I mean, you had Christopher Reeve. He was your guy, really, until, you know, Dean Cain. But Dean Cain in Lois and Clark wasn't really a kid's show. Um, and so I, I never saw Dean Kane as definitive and I'm not sure anybody did on some level, even then you're still comparing him to Christopher Reeve. So, you know, it's, I, I think at, for a long time and I think for many generations of people, in fact, I think this is another discussion, but I think in general, that character is still living in the shadow of Christopher Reeve and that portrayal that is so embedded in us culturally and we've not had anything that's really penetrated the public consciousness with Superman in a new way that we've, we've culturally as a whole redefined Superman yet. And I think that's the reason why Superman is such a tough character. I think right now of all the comic book characters that are well-known and even those that aren't well-known Superman is the hardest And I don't really think he is the hardest. I think we just have a hard time with him because we can't do with him what we like to do with Batman. We can't do with him what works for Wonder Woman. We can't do with him what works for Iron Man. 
And so it's tough to figure out how to sell Superman. And um, that was one of the things in my heart about this film, Look to the Sky. I think Supergirl actually works a lot better right now than Superman does um, for a lot of reasons, but partially because we are really wanting you know, female superheroes, superheroines. We want that right now. And the stories of powerful, positive women really resonate with us right now. And I think that's why the Supergirl television show was so perfectly timed and so needed and so wanted. But Superman doesn't fit that. I mean, Superman is a, he's in a weird sort of box with us that we give Supergirl some slack on. So I love Supergirl when Melissa Benoist was cast and, those pictures started to come out of her with Girl Scouts and all that. I was like <laughs> smiling from ear to ear when all that started because I just thought it was so perfect and so timely. That's such a good point that Superman and Supergirl are held to a little bit of a different standard. And I think part of that is because they are different characters. I know some people just yeah. see the the red cape and the red boots and the S and they just think they're the same kind of character. But they're really not. They have different personalities. And even though both of them come from Krypton, which is a planet that blows up, they have different backstories about how they came from Krypton yep. and how that affected them. So I think some people uh, might view them as the same, but they're they're really not. And so they, they do, in, in a lot of ways, need to be treated as different characters and, um, and seen as such. And um, I know in uh, Look to the Sky, you talked about the death of Superman. Um, w- would you tell us a little bit about how the death of Superman in the comics uh, affected your view of comics or Superman? How did that affect affect you when it happened? Yeah, I mean, that happened when I was in high school. I mean, I can remember, I mean, at that point, I was a weekly guy that had a pull list on my comic books and, you know, would go by once a week. I can't remember if it was Wednesday or Thursday. I can't remember which day comic books come out. But it was, you know, once a week I would go by and it was right on my way to high school and I would pick up the comics. And in fact, that was one of the rare days that I can remember that me and my buddy actually went to the comic book store uh, called Green Shift was the name of it before we went to school that day because they had opened early because of this death of Superman thing. So they were trying to maximize the sales of that comic and they had opened at eight instead of opening, you know, what time comic book stores normally open, like what noon or something, you know, he guy opened at eight. And so we breezed through and got our copies and it was a zoo in there. And I, you know, that comic is an interesting comic because it's not a particularly well-written comic. I mean, it's a very simple, simplistic comic, but I think what stuck out for me, I mean, it's not a horrible comic. It's just not a <laughs> profound comic. Right, right, I'm not right. dogging on the guys that wrote it. I'm just, it's a very simple, I, I think even historically it was hastily written. It was, you know, hastily put together. They didn't have a lot of time to finesse it. I mean, I think if they'd known it was going to be an, such an international phenomenon, they would have given the guys another week to work on it. Um, but, you know, I think what was – and at the time, I was too young to understand kind of culturally what the significance of that was. But I think looking back on it, you know, here we are as a society. We have this image of Superman as a bright, positive, hopeful character. And here's this comic book in this black poly bag. And they have turned the Superman shield into a dripping blood, you know, logo of death 
I mean, this is like we're looking at a coffin of a comic book. And to do that to Superman on some level is kind of a – and then the fact that the whole country kind of goes a little berserk about it. I think people went a little crazy and it became such a cultural phenomenon because I think there is this – there was and still is this fear in us that these positive values that Superman and Supergirl represent, that in fact they really are dead. That when the philosophers say God is dead, that we have this fear that that is true. And Superman Superman is not Batman. I mean, Batman is based on being relatable, being connectable, being human, being understandable. People complain about Superman because he's not relatable. And I think that misses the point. Superman was never supposed to be relatable. Superman was created at a time when the country needed ideals and clear pictures of what we were fighting for and what our values were and what mattered to us and why we were willing as a society and as individuals to go through hell to stand up for those things during a brutal war. That's what Superman was all about. And so, you know, to come to a time where we say, those values, that fight, that integrity, that is dead. We don't value that. That is not who we are anymore. Even though I don't think anybody at DC Comics was necessarily trying to say that, I think that is why people stood up and said, no, this is like you killing Norman Rockwell all over again. This is like a death of our values, and we are not okay with that. We, 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 we are not okay with that pronouncement. And so, you know, the idea of having a comic book of Superman that had a black collectible armband in it that you could put on your, you know, your arm to represent the death of an ideal, you know, that's, you know, that is, that's sad. But I think that you know now we bridge over into Batman versus Superman which is a movie i happen to love and have cried about on multiple occasions me too <laughs> sometimes online publicly <laughs> i've cried about it and you know i mean i have these two videos where i talk about batman versus superman and between the two of them they have a quarter of a million views some of them some people are thanking me and some of them are using every vile profane word you can possibly imagine in their comments to tell me what uh, bleepity bleepity bleep I am for posting this. However, which is funny to me because I'm like, keep posting, guys. The more you post that, the more people see this video. <laughs> but I think what we see in Batman vs. Superman and in Man of Steel is kind of an extension of that. You know, it is a, it is a lost Superman. It is a guy who doesn't know where he belongs anymore. And I think it's a mirror of where we are as a society with those sorts of ideals. You know, where do we sit with that? And I'm not talking about political candidates or conservative versus liberal. It's not even about that. It's about our sense of identity, not only as individuals, but culturally, society, globally. Do we think our best days are ahead? Do we think we have the character and the kindness and the goodness. 
or, or in us left or has the world stomped all of that out? Does the world need and want Superman anymore? And I think today that is the role of a character like Superman is to, is to help us answer that question and then hopefully force us to then look at ourselves in the mirror and say, yeah, you know what? We will still stand up for that. We will still fight for that, which is what your ending of Batman versus Superman is, which is a bunch of people who once he's really dead are looking at him going, wait a second. We like this. We berated against it. We we fought against it. We rebelled against it. We questioned it. We spit on it. And yet when we realize it's dead, we realize how much we needed it for ourselves, for our families. And that's our struggle with Superman today. And I think we're better at that, at, at accepting that from a Supergirl for some reason, that's a whole nother gender discussion, but we feel better about that than some 30 something white guy. You know, there's something about that. We don't, we're not as settled about, and we don't know how to live with that story as well, but we love the young empowered woman. That story we feel great about. And that's why Supergirl was so perfectly timed, but I still have in my heart that at some point we are going to get a Superman that breaks through again and that we all agree on to love again, but it, we just don't have it quite yet. What's so you know magnificent about the return of Superman in the comics or even Justice League when he's resurrected is that it's it's uh, showing that hope still carries on, that hope lives again. And it, it, it's not, you know, Superman is dead and hope is buried. Um, it, it's returned. And so I, I think that's, you know, everything that you just said is is paid off by the fact that Superman does come back. Yep. So I, I think that that's a, a great point to, to bring up. And um, especially with Supergirl versus Superman, I think there are expectations that are placed on both of them in, in different respects. And, and Superman does have higher expectations that is placed on him. And it's probably because he was the first and because he does embody a lot of those ideals that, that you were talking about. And, and Supergirl does as well, but she, she doesn't have as many of those expectations on her. Christopher Reeve is for a lot of people, the, the, their version of Superman or who they think of when they think of Superman. But Supergirl hasn't really had that, I don't think, as much. I mean, there was the the one Helen Slater movie, but she's Supergirl is not a character who is as widely known as Superman. So I think that yeah. when she came back around, there was less expectations for her to be a certain way. Yes. Yes. I, I was just going to say that. She does not live in the weight of so many years of history. Mm. And you know, she does not live in that. And, and I think the other thing that's so interesting, and this is the other thing now having made these two movies about Batman and Superman, is that one of the core differences with Batman, Batman and Superman, and one of the reasons why Superman is so hard, is that Batman is very flexible. You know, Batman can do, you know, Adam West and work. Batman can do... Tim Burton's magical, mystical show world and work. He can do uh, Christopher Nolan's, you know, complex political thriller and work. He can be a video game for little kids or do the brave and the bold or Batman, the animated series. I mean, there are dozens of versions of Batman you can speak about that work, but Superman is not flexible like that. Superman 
can't go as as easily from light to dark, from camp to serious. Superman, you know, it's like you take Christopher Reeve and he is like our favorite Superman. And you can shift him a little bit, but you shift him too far. You shift Superman too far and he breaks, you know, because he's an ideal. Batman's not an ideal. Batman's just a guy. Superman's an ideal. And if you move him too much, he cracks. And I think that's been the difficult thing they've been wrestling with for the past two decades with Superman is, well, how can we make this fresh? How can we make it new when we have a character that we can't just throw in the blender and redefine the way Batman can? And I mean, Wonder Woman's the same thing. I mean, you know, the difference between, you know, the way Wonder Woman was played by Linda Carter so many years ago and the way she's played by Gal Gadot, it's not that different, really. But they found a way to add fresh magic to it something new that sparked people. And, and I think they're having a difficult time on that with Superman. But, but the beauty of, of Supergirl is that in many ways, Supergirl kind of captures the magic that Superman had 40 years ago. But she's able to make it fresh because there's something new about giving it a feminine, uh, giving it a feminine perspective and, and giving it a young person's problems. It has this sort of Spider-Man sort of mythos to it of a young person finding themselves, being who they are, learning who they are as a human being or as a person on the planet, better said, while learning how to use their powers. And, and so we relate to that better. We like it. It's, it doesn't have the weight of all the past. Yeah, and Supergirl is allowed to mess up. Mm-hmm. Superman, we, we, don't, we don't want him to screw anything up. He has to do everything right the exact way the, uh, every time. But Supergirl is allowed to screw up, and she's allowed to make mistakes. <laughs> and and uh, sometimes yeah, she does yeah. in the show. Sometimes she... Um, uh, will accidentally cause something worse to happen, um, even though she didn't mean to. And and part of me feels really bad for Clark Kent. What <laughs> what terrible what terrible you know stress and weight that we put on him to be perfect all the time. So I, I it just really makes me feel bad for Clark. After eighty years, you think he's supposed to have it figured out, and right. that's not fair. No, (laughs) no, I do not think it's fair to Clark Kent. We should all ease up on him. Yes, yes, yes. So talking about Look to the Sky, since this is your movie, uh, using Superman as a tool to uh, talk about these stories of these real people and these uh, these kids who are making a difference in the world and who are um, changing their communities for the better. I I was curious, how did you come up with this idea and how did you find these specific people that um, that you interviewed and, and focused? on in the film. So, you know, it's funny. I just did a Facebook live a few minutes ago before this recording. And I read the first chapter because this, this movie look to the sky also has a companion book with it, which is really cool. That's new for me. I've never done that. Um, and, um, you know, in that, in that opening, I talk about kind of the idea of, you know, that with legends of the night, you know, I, we did all these charity screenings. I mean, the film screened theatrically in 110 cities. And I went to a lot of those screenings in what year was it? 20, 2014, I guess it was. You know, I went to a lot of those screenings and sat in those theaters where you had a bunch of eight-year-olds in the room wearing superhero costumes, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, all kinds of characters, and raising money for charity and raising awareness and 
walking out of the movie theater feeling positive about the uplifting movie they just saw. And, you know, so, I mean, I spent a year of my life doing that, raising money for charity, hanging out with young people who were excited. And so while other people, this is what I say in the introduction to this book, Look to the Sky, you know, while other people are sitting, you know, in their Twitter feed, you know, looking at all the mean things people are saying to each other and, you know, reading all these terrible news stories, I'm hanging out with a bunch of little superheroes. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I got done with that tour and, you know, I would sit down with a friend for dinner and they would be like, man, there's just terrible things going on. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Everything's wonderful. And I realized how important that perspective shift is. You know, it, it's about, you know, because there's there's so many things going on in the world every day. There's good things and there's bad things happening. And each one of us have a picture frame like in our hand. Like imagine we have – we're holding like an empty picture frame. We get to choose where we put that picture frame, what we put it in front of. And whatever we put that picture frame in front of is what the world is for us. That's what – that's the lens we see through. And I wanted – I was like, man, how come some people are good at putting the lens in front of the really positive stuff and some people tend to put it in front of the negative stuff? And that comes back to this whole discussion about our problem with Superman today. You know, you posted that on Twitter, I think it was today, Rebecca, about, you know, what I say at the beginning of this movie, which is I think we have a Superman problem. You know, Superman represents the best in us, the ideal. But today we're having a tough time focusing on ideals. We're focused on all the things that are wrong with us, all the terrible things, all of the issues, all of the problems. We're focused on that. And that's important. That matters. We do have to deal with that. But what are we going to emotionally, mentally, spiritually put our energy on? Are we going to try to fight the darkness or are we going to try to raise up the light? Because those are two different ways of looking at the world. I try not to fight the darkness. I instead try to focus on raising up the light. And that those are two different ways of living in the world. And so... I thought to myself, okay, well, the people that can do that well, that is the essence of what it is to be Superman in the world. The people that can do that are the people that make Superman real every day. Who are they? Where are they? Well, after spending a year in a movie theaters with these kids, I'd given myself that answer, which is I think young people do that more naturally, more organically than we old folks do, you know, because we got problems. You know, I mean, yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, we got issues, we got mortgages, we got tax bills, we got, you know, all of this stuff. And it's easy for the winds and the waves of all of that going on while we're in our boat out in the ocean to cause us to kind of lose our way and lose our focus and lose our direction. But kids are still very in touch with that. They haven't lost that yet. And so I thought, okay, I think this is going to be a great way to do it. Let's let's show that that iconic spirit of Superman and his ideals are still alive in the world, and they exist in these young people. They exist in these kids. That's the best place, easiest place to see it. And so then I started looking for you know stories of young people where it was really apparent. There was a level in which I feel like I could take almost any kid and sit down and have a conversation with them, and that stuff would kind of naturally flow out of them. There's a level in which when you sit and talk to a kid, it's like having a conversation 
with, you know, Clark Kent in a Christopher Reeves Superman movie. But I wanted to make it very apparent. So we went after stories of young people who were, you know, diverse, but who had really done things that were in some ways kind of on a Superman level of, you know, heroism. You know, whether it was that they personally overcame something in their own life that was really challenging and difficult, or they did something to help someone else that was really that next level sort of Superman, Supergirl kind of moment. I didn't know where we were going to go with it, but I was also really, you know, I loved the fact that, you know, we were able to include, you know, both boys and girls equally in the film and include people of different backgrounds and different part from different parts of the country. And that's why it became so natural for the, you know, the artwork you know, the poster art, the artwork, if you see it on Hulu, iTunes, or Amazon, you know, it's a little Supergirl, you know, with the red cape flowing in the background. And that was very appropriate, you know, because there are, even though Superman is the character that maybe is more iconic to most people, there's as much Supergirl in these in this film as there is Superman. Oh, yeah. You have a lot of little Supergirls uh, in this one. Um, uh, would you tell our listeners about Violet? I loved her her story. Um, would you tease her her story? I'm happy to, but but first of all, I have to preface it by saying there are no words that I could say in this moment that will do this kid justice <laughs> because she is like a force of nature. She's a presence. So cute. Yeah, when I filmed with Violet, she was five years old, and she's a little kid who was born with a genetic mutation that essentially. Any, any cell in her body could become cancer. And it first manifested in her eyes. Uh, there was like a little glow in her eyes that she had a certain condition called retinoblastoma. Um, and so she had to have surgery done that was connected to her eyes. She went through multiple rounds of chemotherapy. I mean, this is before she's like two years old. And went through all of this stuff. They weren't sure if it was going to hurt her, damage her, what she would be like afterwards. Um, and, you know, and then her family went through this entire journey of going through cancer with such a young child. And um, ultimately, they got through that. In you know, and, and she's been clear for a while. In fact, I was in Seattle giving a, a speech uh, last week. Yeah, last week. And I saw her. And her family, they, they, we got to hang out together and she actually came on stage with me when I gave my speech and it was really cool. And, but the thing about her is, I mean, that, what I just expressed is amazing. And the fact that her family now does this thing where they create little, what they call blessing bundles that they deliver to other kids that are going through cancer treatment. I mean, it's all wonderful, but what I still could not express to you is the fact that this kid is an embodiment of everything that it is to be alive. You know, all the passion, the joy, the innocence, the creativity, the love and the heart. And so, you know, the, the six or seven minute segment about her in the film, the story is great, but what's better is just her, the things she says, the fearless passion she has to love people and connect with people and hug people and be kind to people. And, you know, I did this uh, Facebook Live with her that I didn't intend. It was a 30-minute Facebook Live session that I didn't intend for that to be in the film. I just did it because I wanted to do it. And it kind of became the glue 
that held that segment together um, as she and I talked together. But you can watch that on my Facebook feed. It's like 30 minutes long. It's the greatest 30 minutes that's ever been on Facebook. <laughs> um, better than the Chewbacca mom thing. It's, it's, it's really amazing. Not because I'm great in it. I'm just the straight man. And so when we had the world premiere in Tampa uh, for this film, we arranged for her to fly from Seattle with her family to be with us. And she came out in this amazing Supergirl costume. And if you go to my Facebook page, it's, you know, how you can pick your five favorite pictures. The picture of me and her sitting on the stage is in my little thing of five favorites. And um, she's just the greatest. I mean, and I, you know, when I had to say goodbye to her the other day, it was so sad because she is just light. Well, she was very inspiring to me, and I was inspired by all of these stories that you included in the film. Um, all of the the kids uh, do a little something different, and they all have different backgrounds from where they come from and how they overcome odds. It's just really super inspiring, and I think you did a great job of showing the world that there is still good in people, still good in humanity, and and uh, that we don't have to focus on the bad things all the time. So um, I think those stories are all worth watching. And uh, there was an interview in the film from uh, a woman named... Uh, where is it? I had it here somewhere. It's from a woman named Jennifer Fights, who is a licensed professional counselor, and she says, hope is confidence that the future holds something positive. That was her definition of hope. Um, so um, my question to you, Brett, is how would you define hope? What would you say that hope is? Hope to me is synonymous with one other word, and that word is possibility. Possibility. Hope is about looking at what is acknowledging the challenges and difficulties, but imagining what could be, what could happen, where we could go. And I think that's true, you know, in all forms of our lives. You know, when you hold a little baby, all that baby can do is eat, sleep, poop, and scream. That's it. (laughs) But But you look that kid in the face and you see possibility. You see what could be. And then you invest your time, money, energy, resources, everything you got for 18 years, 20 years, 40 years sometimes to bring that possibility in the world. Essentially, you're holding space as a parent. You're holding space for what you believe is possible for that child. That to me is hope. And, and I think it hope is the ability to believe, as Jennifer says, that something good is ahead. And the moment that you stop believing that is the moment that you lose hope. Because hope is not, in my judgment, based on the, the what's going on. Like if someone says, you know, I saw the news today, and because of that, I lost hope. Well, that's not hope. Hope is not dependent on specific circumstances. Hope is that steadfast sense that something good is still ahead, no matter what has already happened. And that's what we do with kids. You know, a three-year-old kid, you don't look at a three-year-old kid who can't seem to walk straight and say, well, it's all over, I guess. You know, there's no possibility for the future. This kid can't even talk without a lisp or whatever. He's doomed. We don't say that. We say, he's a kid. He'll grow up. It'll be fine. You know, and that's the way I want to be about my own life. I want to give myself 
that sense of hope that there's more to me than the world has seen and also give society and the nation and the world that too to say there is better in us than what we have yet seen and i will hold space for it now i think that is the incredible power of a character like superman and why characters like superman and supergirl are so important you know they superman used to have that title we don't use it anymore we talk about this in the film you know he used to be called the man of tomorrow the man of tomorrow and we don't use that anymore now we're much more apt to use another nickname for him which is man of steel you know and i think it's an interesting contrast between those things that now we're much more comfortable with calling him the man of steel the you know hard force you know power than we are calling him the man of the future the man, the the man of ideals the man of that embodies where we are going because i think that's what that image of him was in the early days of the man of tomorrow is he embodies where we are going, who we can be. And I think we need more of that. I think in our society today, we need more stories that embody who we could be, where we could go. And, and don't just embody where we are today and where we're stuck today some days, but, but who we could be, who, where we could go. And I think, I think when these characters do that, when Superman, when Supergirl – do that and paint us that sort of picture, then they effectively give us that sense of hope because obviously we're looking at characters who have superpowers that we don't have. But the truth is, is that every single one of us are carrying our superpower in our pocket with our little phones. I mean, we are, we are walking, first of all, life in general is a miracle, but we're walking around with more power today than, than human beings have ever had before. Our ability to create change, to create movement, to have influence, to make the lives of other people different. We are living in an unparalleled time in history where you can do some things. You could raise some money. You could create an effort and really, truly impact the lives of people on the other side of the world. Even 80 years ago, you really couldn't do that. That wasn't possible. Well, now you can. Well, I mean, that's a Superman thing. That used to be relegated to a Superman comic that Superman could save the lives of eight people on the other side of the world. Well, now you can do that any day you want, any time you want. And you don't think you have superpowers? You do. Question is, what will you do with them? And I think we need more stories like Superman and Supergirl to give us a little bit of a roadmap, not about exactly how to do it, because we're not going to fly and have super speed and super breath, but the sort of morals, integrity, character, and hope that we need to accomplish those things, to use our phones to help other people and lift them up instead of just watching cat memes. But that's the choice we have to make every day. <laughs> yeah, and I really like your definition, including the idea of possibility, because I think that Superman and Supergirl do embody that. I mean, the fact that Jor-El and, and Laura and Allura and Zor-El, they both sets of those parents put their kid in a pod and ship them out 
into space, hoping for the possibility of their their having a future. Yes. Um, so yes. I, I think they they really do embody hope in in that way of defining it is that there is a possibility for those characters. That is so true. You, you're so right. In fact, I don't even know why I'd, I'd never even thought of that till you said it. That his origin, even as a child, is built in hope. You know, but that's even the Bible. I mean, if you you know whether you are a Bible reader or not. One of the interesting stories, one of the most interesting things to me in the Bible is that Adam and Eve like have these two children in the early. This is like the first story in the in the Bible. They have <laughs> these two kids, and one of them is murders the other, and then the murderer is expelled. Well, I mean, I think it'd be pretty easy to to say, well, this whole thing doesn't work. You know, <laughs> maybe we shouldn't do this. Like, this is not a good plan. This is not a good idea. And yet I heard a rabbi say once that them having a third child whose name was Abel is the first act of hope in the Bible. Hmm. It's the first act of hope in the spiritual text because it's the first time that they're willing to say, no, we believe that there is something good that we could still build a family, even having watched that happen between these two children. And I think that's exactly what you said. It's that belief that life innately has within it something good and that it is worth, as you just said, launching our child out in space to a place that we don't even know where he's going because our belief that at its core, life is benevolent, that the universe is a good, benevolent place. And we're essentially entrusting our child to the universe, to the unknown, because we believe that he will be taken care of because the world, the universe in itself is an innate place, innately good place, is a benevolent place. That is a crazy thing to say. I mean, who would really believe that today? Who would say, yeah, I believe that about the world. I believe that, you know, but that is in some ways the job of parenting. I mean, I have a 15-year-old living in my house, and in just a few years, he's going to leave my house probably and go out into the world. And there's part of me that's like, I don't know how I would do that. But imagine doing that with like an infant saying, we're just going to send them out in the world. I mean, that's hope at its very core. You're <laughs> <Yeah>. so right. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. Yeah. Um, those are all really profound thoughts. And, and I, I really appreciate you sharing those thoughts about hope because I think sometimes the definition of hope gets muddled between uh, different kinds of people who, you know, define it different ways. Uh, so I know we uh, talked about some really deep, uh, thought-provoking things, um, but Brett, if you're willing to get a little silly with us, um, we have some snap judgments that we're going to do. I'm ready. In the game of snap judgments, each person is presented with two options, but must only choose one. First instincts are recommended and explanations are unnecessary. So the first one we have, um, uh, these are all catered to you. Um, so the first one is, which aspect of filmmaking do you have more fun doing? Shooting video or editing? What would you say to that, Brett? Definitely editing, because I can do that in my pajamas, on my <laughs> own time. I can eat whatever I want. The filming requires me to travel all over the world and with equipment, and it's exhausting, and there's a lot of unknowns, and it's very stressful. But sitting in my own studio you know, eating whatever candy I want to eat in my most comfy <laughs> clothes, that I will choose every time. Morgan, would you rather uh, be behind a camera or would you rather tell stories in an, e in an editing bay? Do you have a choice on that? Hmm. I would say 
I would say shooting video because I'm I'm just relating it to. It's funny that you mentioned that you came from a journalism background. I I did that in college as well, and I I always found that like the editing, like putting everything together into the finished piece, so much harder than like hmm. just going out and getting interviews or talking to somebody. I like that part, and then I'm like, oh no, now I have to organize this. Um, <laughs> my lack of organization skills. I'm sure Rebecca could could attest to this, but like I I would have to like put all the information together. I'm like, oh no. So oh, I would probably goodness. rather shoot video than edit because that just sounds harder. <laughs> I like editing. I, there's something about being able to start with a blank timeline and then end up with a finished product that you can actually watch. There, that, there's a miraculous thing that happens in editing where you start with nothing and then you have something. Um, but I would rather be behind a camera. Always and forever. I, I, my, my place is behind the camera. Um, so I, I would have to pick that. Um, although I do enjoy editing. Um, our next snap judgment is, uh, watching a film in the theater or watching a film in the comfort of your own home. Brett, which would uh, be your preference? Yes. If it's an adult film, I will definitely choose the movie theater and the, now, wait, let me make sure I've qualified that. When I mean adult <laughs> film, I mean a film that is not for preschoolers. Sure. Like when I took yeah, my little sure. kids, that's not as enjoyable experience because you've got kids like throwing popcorn at your head behind you and all that stuff and talking through the whole movie and looking at their dad's phone. That I don't like. But if I'm watching like a serious film, you know, a real film, then I want to be in the theater. And Movie Pass has really changed that for me. Because now that I have my movie pass, you know, I pay whatever it is, $10 a month that I can go as much as I want. So now I'm seeing a lot more movies in the theaters than I used to. And often I'm seeing them like on a Monday or Tuesday night and there's like nobody there. So, you know, I love being if I could sit in a nearly and I usually go by myself. I'm one of those weird people. I see most movies by myself. I saw Batman vs. Superman four times every time I think was by myself. So, you know, I just like that experience. So um, I'm going to say that. Movie Pass is life-changing. Uh, uh, I, don't, I have heard this. I have heard this. You've told me <laughs> Morgan, this. Morgan, <laughs> you have to get a Movie Pass. I don't know how they make any money. I don't know how the, their yeah. business model works. I, I got I to gotta get on that before, before that folds over. <laughs> yeah, they're going yeah. to uh, go out of business somehow because I don't think they make any money. But maybe they do, and I just don't know about it. But it is it is life changing. Um, so Morgan, what would you uh, if you had a movie pass? I don't know if this would change your answer. Um, would you rather <laughs> watch a film in the theater or watch a film in the comfort of your own home? Well, I do love uh, watching stuff in my jams. Uh, <laughs> I'd say I'd go for watching a film in a theater. There's just something about seeing a film in a theater, like with other people. Especially, I always think about like opening night crowds it's such a such a fun experience i think there it's fun watching a movie by yourself and like or in your home where you can like have have your own popcorn that you didn't have to spend 25 dollars for and like yeah. pause if you have to like take a bathroom break but there's just something about seeing it in the theater yeah i would i would also agree i think it would be three for three on the snap judgment i would rather watch it in the theater um there there's a there's a magic there about being in the in the movie theater and it's uh, still very nostalgic for me because uh we we would go um watch uh movies in the theater all the time when i was growing up and so it's just uh, one of those things that always connects me to my childhood and uh so i i always like to go when it whenever i can all right so our last snap judgment this is a little crazy one 
but it's also the most important snap judgment mm-hmm. of this Supergirl <laughs> radio episode. So, Brett, if you were to do another film based on a DC character with teleportation abilities, which one of these two options would you choose? Would you go for Snapper Car <laughs> or Ambush Bug? <laughs> I love that you worked Snapper Car into this question. This is an impossible question. Uh, So I think I would do Snapper Car, but I would have to find a unique way to do it because the average person doesn't know who he is. So I think what I would probably do is do something that was about like the unknown people, the unknown everyday people that like hold things together or that. You know, something that that or maybe something about humor or the important. I don't know. I don't know what I do. It's not quite in my vein, but it would definitely be Snapper Car. There's a lot of history to dig through with Snapper Car. So you would have a lot of <laughs> yeah. material to get to get through um, there. There's no shortage of uh, what you could explore with Snapper Car. Morgan, which one would you choose? Would you uh, want to make a movie about Snapper Car or Ambush Bug? I mean, why isn't there already a movie about Snapper Car <laughs> is my question. <laughs> I mean, any movie that you can end on robot hands, I think you go for I it. I mean, robot hands is is the ending that, that is you the have, ending, yeah. yeah. Talk, talk about hope. I mean, here's a character <laughs> who gets his hand cut off and he uh, gets his hand restored. That's That's pretty hopeful. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm really split on this because on the one hand, ambush bug is really weird and, uh, very intriguing to me. Uh, and I think he, he could be a character that I would enjoy learning about. Um, but I also too, I think I would maybe make a movie about snapper car. I want people to know his story, uh, because people really don't know his story and his, he's one of the greatest DC comics characters, uh, ever created. And, uh, I think we should put some respect uh, in, 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 in like a two-hour film, if we could get that. I think he deserves that. No judgments on your snap judgments. It wouldn't be like a Ken Burns-style documentary, like multiple, oh my gosh. multiple parts. Like, like a 10-episode like a miniseries yes. of just, just different types of uh, episodes based on a theme. <laughs> oh, yes. We could, we, could, we could workshop that. We could, we, we could see what we can uh, figure out how to do that. A serious voiceover, some archival footage, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, we're coming up with some really great ideas here. We're, we're going to have to think more on this. We can make that happen. Um, well, thank you, Brett, for coming on Supergirl Radio and, and playing our silly little game and talking with us about Superman and Supergirl. Um, where can our listeners uh, find Look to the Sky? Where can they find your Look to the Sky companion book? Uh, and where can they find you on the Internet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll go through everything. So I'm at Brett Culp, which is that's pretty much where I am with everything. That's my website. That's all of it. And it's B-R-E-T-T. I have two T's in my name. <laughs> and then my last name is Culp, C-U-L-P. That's P as in paper. So if you know that, then you can find my website. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, Instagram. I post in all of those places nearly every day. Uh, I have a YouTube channel as well with lots of that kind of stuff. And then my first film that was about Batman called Legends of the Night, that movie is now on Amazon Prime, and it is on iTunes. Those are the two main places to find that movie. And then my brand new movie that's related to Superman and Supergirl, that movie is on Hulu. 
It is on uh, Amazon, like as a rental, or a, uh, you can buy it there, and it is on iTunes. And then the companion book, which goes deeper into the stories and ideas that are in the movie, that is on Amazon. And that's available in paperback and in Kindle formats. Very cool. Well, if you would like to contact Supergirl Radio, you can email us at supergirlradio at gmail.com. You can post a comment on our website at supergirlradio.com. You can leave us a voicemail uh, by calling 678-718-7252. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram, all at Supergirl Radio. You can listen to us on Google Play, iHeartRadio, and on Spotify, which we have all of our podcast episodes there, as well as a musical playlist from music featured on the show, music about Supergirl. Uh, so uh, there's, a, there's a very long playlist there. It would uh, uh, be something to check out if you like the music on the show. We are listed on DC's fan page, which you can find at dccomics.com forward slash dc-fans. We are available on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher Radio, so if you have some time, we encourage you to give us a rating and write us a review over there. And if you need any of these links that I just mentioned, you can find them at supergirlradio.com on the right side of the page. And Supergirl Radio is a part of the DC TV Podcast Network, so if you also like Arrow, The Flash, Legends of Tomorrow, iZombie, classic DC TV shows, Black Lightning, Krypton, and Titans. You can subscribe to DC TV Podcasts on Apple Podcasts and follow at DC TV Podcasts on Twitter and like DC TV Podcasts on Facebook. I, I saw that uh, the Legends of Tomorrow finale was this week. It was. I haven't I haven't watched it yet, but I uh, the vibe I'm getting is that it was very good. <laughs> well, uh, what a coincidence. I have not watched it either. <laughs> that is a coincidence. <laughs> Mainly because I don't watch the show, uh, but I do listen to the podcast. So uh, yeah, you can check out all of our uh, DCTV podcasts um, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at DerbyKid. That's D-E-R-B-Y-K-I-D. And I'm also on Instagram at the Derby Kid. And you can watch videos of mine over at youtube.com slash duckmilkprod. And I am also a contributor to JLU Podcast, which you can find over at jluniverse.podomatic.com. I was recently on with Sam Otten, and we talked about Arthur Curry meeting a Bruce Wayne for the first time. And I also talked about... Uh, the scene where you hear the phrase Ludendorff enough, which is like the greatest piece of dialogue in any movie ever. And I haven't stopped saying it. It's hilarious. <laughs> um, so you can check out our um, Justice League and Wonder Woman uh, episodes there. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter and uh, Instagram. I'm at Mojotastic. That's M-O-J-O-T-A-S-T-I-C. Uh, and you can also find me as a co-host on the Legends of Tomorrow podcast, where we will be uh, podcasting about that finale I haven't watched pretty soon, so I'm going to have to watch it. Uh, so you should check that out. And uh, that, I think, is going to do it for this episode of Supergirl Radio. So until next time, I'm still Rebecca Johnson. I'm still Morgan Glennon. And remember, with the more darkness we face, the more we need bright symbols to light our path forward. Yeah.